3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Another week begins and it's more history in the making. The eyes of the world are focused on Singapore where North Korea's Kim Jong-un is preparing to meet US President Donald Trump for an extraordinary summit that could safeguard peace in the region for decades to come. Everything about the summit is so far extraordinary, including Trump's slagging off of his G7 allies after the meeting of the weekend uh, in Canada. He accused the Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau of stabbing him in the back. It's going to be a bumpy ride for the next few days with the Nobel Peace Prize is still in sight, despite what Katie Perrier says, and she's here to defend herself once again. 0344 499 Coming up, we're going to be finding out what's really wrong with the trains in this country, and which idiot thought it would be a good idea to hand out a CBE to network rail boss Mark Kahn at the weekend, just before we learned that they now have the wrong kind of tunnels. 0344 499 We're definitely not talking about Love Island, but we will be getting to the bottom of what all those Beckham marriage rumours are all about on Friday afternoon and all over the weekend as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham and Katie Perrier on Talk Radio. The
1: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Time to say a very good morning to you Ms. Katie Perrier. How are you?
2: Good morning. I'm good, thank you. How very are you? nice to
3: see you. Looks like you've had a very very relaxing weekend what although you did manage weekend. to make it onto the GMB sofa this morning.
2: Oh, it's an early start. It
3: is an early start. What time did you just get up for that? Uh 4:30. 4:30.
2: Yeah. And Blimey. uh the makeup lady took one look at me and went, ooh, how long have we got? <laughs> That's not a good start to the day, is That's it? That's not
3: brilliant, is it? No, no, no. So which magazine does a survey, right, Uh, a study, and discovers that 12 operators out of 26 on the railway network are providing incorrect and inconsistent advice about compensation? Some of them are actually saying that passengers have no right to make claims under certain circumstances which is actually not true it's so,
2: all part of their contracts as I well mean, surely, they have to offer that yeah
3: surely that is is, is verging on criminal behaviour isn't it fraudulent certainly I mean, if you're telling people in mis- giving people misinformation about what refunds they can claim I'd say that's that's. Uh, well, I would say it's a breach of actionable. contract between yeah. the
2: government and the, and the train operating companies yeah. and I would also and I'd take them to task on and it. a
3: breach of contract between the passengers and the, and the train companies as Correct. well because every time you you get buy a ticket for a train you're, you're entering a contract aren't you
2: absolutely and if
3: they're not honouring that contract then I think you have actually maybe launch a class actually get some. We're used to constantly
2: calling like you know delay repay. Oh well you know the service is really bad. At least you can delay repay. And now you can't even do that. So no, I, 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 think, I think they should be taken to court for that.
3: Let's it. talk to Hugh in Rygate. He wants to talk about the honours system. Hello Hugh. Hi, Hugh. Hi I'm right. Hi Katie. How are you guys? Yeah, very good. well indeed. What do you uh, what do you want to tell us?
0: Uh, well, you, you, you touched on a pet hate of mine. we talking about the honours system. I mean, it's completely outdated and outmoded. Uh, you know, either they're giving out honours to make the government look good. Um, you know, and we know where that gets. Yeah, and yeah. giving And you know, giving honors to people like Savile, and you know, over the years, yeah. come back to bite them on the bum. Mm. They really should be looking at this sort of stuff a little bit more closely at the people they're giving it to.
3: Well, you'd think as well that uh, I mean, despite what Casey said, that somebody should be vetting it a little bit more closely, as vis-a-vis whatever the news is at the time. Well,
0: yes, but I mean, it, part of it is the old boys' network, where where people you know are doing what they need to do to get an honor, and they're rewarded for it. Um, and the rest is, you know people like uh, the Prime Minister giving out honours because it makes them look yeah. good. I mean, giving Andy Murray a, 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 a knighthood at, what, 28, 29? isn't it? it? But he's I mean, still playing. It's popularism,
3: isn't it? It's just yeah, it. I mean, they should definitely not give sports stars, in my view, any kind of honour until they've retired, until they've finished playing. Because the idea that, you know, you have to go, uh, Sir, uh, Sir Andrew Murray is now taking the court and the umpire has to re- refer to him as Sir Andrew or something. It's madness, isn't it?
0: But absolutely, but it won't win any votes if they do it when he's 45 and retired. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I once worked for a, a multinational business during the early part of my career, uh, and our previous chairman had been uh, made a, a knight. Mm. Um, and his successor, who'd been with the company for some time, as was the wanted big organisations in those days, um, just went all out to get himself a knighthood. And, yeah. I, you know, the, the, oh, the, company, yes. the group sponsored a, a major homeless charity, um, you know, a lobbying group essentially. Right. Um, and Did they throw a bit of money
3: towards the uh, the, the government's uh, coffers as well?
0: Absolutely, yeah. mean, and we just you know, the whole sort of marketing and PR um, departments of of, of a, com- a company employing eight thousand people in this country at the time was turned not to business but to uh, making him look good and doing nice things, which made him look good. The uh, lengths
2: the lengths that some people go to to get a knighthood are astonishing. I know one one gentleman who said, uh, "Dear Prime Minister, thank you very much for my knighthood." Uh, It's amazing. Um, I got it for charitable giving and I'm really glad to be recognised in this way. Just to let you know, my son is great at charitable giving as well and listed all of the kind of things that (laughs) that his son did and kind of said, maybe you might like to consider him too. Yours sincerely, I'm, I'm it was. and I read this let- letter thinking, you have got to be kidding me. Mm.
0: Exactly, I mean in this day and age it should at least be nominated by the public, it should be properly vetted, vetted and uh, we should get people that are, are deserving of it, I mean we all know people. I think the whole
3: system uh, needs just doing away with you, I don't see well, the point yeah, of it's... making anybody, I mean we're not living in some kind of, you know, Knights of the Round Table era <laughs> of, you know, all Sir Galahad when you go and rescue my fair lady you know, get lost, everybody should be the same everybody should be equal and they shouldn't be given a make up for any reason
0: well i agree with you but i mean uh, and that's why i mean talking on the other themes of your show i mean the old politi- political way of doing things which katie mentioned at the top of the hour were uh, you know it, these people are living in a different world mm. where knighthoods and, and mbes and cbes are important um mm. they're not really important to the rest of the country um and you know as soon as people realize that new politics might start to actually do things that people want to be done rather than reward people for doing things which we don't care about.
3: i tell you what, if he lives in the north of England, he takes a morning train and then he doesn't get home till about midnight because the evening train doesn't run very well and he often is derailed and or missing uh, at various points. How about this, right, uh, from Steve? He says, uh, our mate has a broken leg, so we thought we were going to go to Birmingham from Nottingham by train. When the train turned up, there were only two carriages and all the seats were reserved. They sold a ticket to someone with a broken leg knowing he could not sit down. When we complained, there was no apology until we were told to plan our trip better. We will never use the service again and research has shown a pre-booked taxi would have only cost £20 more. Yeah. And that's the kind of that's story that you hear that's, every single day, that's why roads week in, up. week out, because, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen people uh, that I've been talking to on Twitter saying things like, you know, the school holidays are coming up. We, will, we wanted to take the train down to Devon because we thought that would be a nice way of uh, just having a different type of holiday because it's frustrating driving on the M5 and all the way down the M4 and all that. And, in the end, they just worked out that they couldn't guarantee to get to where they wanted to go in the time allotted uh, or or indeed could they get back on the Sunday because there were no trains on the Sunday because it was a bank holiday weekend or something ridiculous And so people are getting more and more frustrated i
2: think they're not as only they're not reliable they're very expensive, so they when really you put are. five people in a car. It's actually cheaper to to drive and use your car while you're there. And also, at least
3: even if you're in traffic, you are in control of your own destiny. There is nothing worse than standing on a station platform without any idea of what's going on and nobody telling you what's going on. Let's talk to Bruce Williamson, uh, who's from Rail Future. Bruce, a very good morning to you. Welcome.
2: Hi, Bruce. Good morning.
3: Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it does seem to be reaching kind of a state of critical mass, doesn't it? The problems on the railways.
1: Well... Yes. I mean, you, you could argue, if I will, that the railways have been the victim of their own success because you talk about overcrowded trains and, and more and more passengers are using the railway. And, you know, that's kind of one of the causes of the problem or more to the point that the government hasn't matched the investment needed to keep up with this this growing demand on the railway. And, of course, inevitably, when things go wrong. Uh, it makes great copy,
3: doesn't it? Well, why is it up to the government to invest in the railway when these railways are run by profiteering private companies?
1: <clears throat> well, they're not really. The, the, the private companies, you know, have very little room for manoeuvre. They don't, for instance, they don't buy the trains. They're, they're managed centrally. And the Department for Transport really micromanages the whole railway. So, um, yeah, but know, the I private companies
3: why... get to take the profit out of it, don't they? Uh,
1: to some extent, yes. Yes, to they some, do. Well, it's a uh, yes
3: or a no answer, really. It's not to some well, okay, extent. Yeah, is... well, oh,
1: the, the point I'm making, though, is is that um, I, I don't think it's fair to call them profiteering. Um, they, they do make a profit. It's a relatively modest one. They, they run a fairly tight ship. The margins are pretty tight. So they're not rolling in. In cash, So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, do complain about the level of fares, including organisations such as Railfuture. You know, we, we want a cheaper railway. But the, the levels of fares are controlled by the government and, and they are certainly too high. But despite these high rail fares, passengers carry on wanting to use the railway.
3: Yeah, but we seem to have the worst of all worlds here because we have, on the one hand, you know, taxpayer-funded, subsidised trains, but not subsidised enough so that they're cheapish for people to travel on. We have a system which seems to be creaking on the grounds that we've just had new timetables introduced and then loads and loads of trains, hundreds and hundreds of trains in the north of England cancelled, certainly, because the timetables were somehow wrong. I mean, there's, there's there's a disconnect going on somewhere, isn't there?
1: Yes, certainly. There, there is clearly something's very gone very, very wrong, and there, and there's clearly an awful lot of improvement uh, possible um, on the railways. You know, the, the the recent chaos we've seen on on GTR, Thameslink, and, and Northern. You know, is it, is inexcusable, but again, to, to some extent, I, I lay the blame at the government for, for, for managing this fiasco. And, and Chris Grayling, is uh, trying to pass the buck onto the industry, saying, you know, not me, Gov, but actually it is his department, uh, the Department for Transport, which, uh, for instance... Um, uh, had, had an influence on the, on the number of people working at, uh, at Network Rail, so that there weren't enough staff around to manage the change of timetable and so on, and, and it, it led to this sort of chaos.
3: But why did they change the timetable uh, if they couldn't handle changing the timetable?
1: Very good question. I suppose it's, it's like... Uh, I, I have described it previously as like a car crash in slow motion. So <laughs> what should have happened you know, if it all went according to plan, there's a lot of investment, a lot of new trains, a lot of new routes, new bits of line opening and so on. So in order to improve the service, things have to change, inevitably, yeah. you know, and that means a new timetable. You know, you can't just sort of sit still. You, you, you've got to manage these improvements.
3: Um, yeah, but you know be- as well as I do, Bruce, in any other business if you were this useless at it, you would not still be in a job. And the bottom line is is that most of the people in charge of all of this, and I include maybe cabinet ministers as well, nobody seems to be moving along. I mean, Katy Perry sits here next to me, right? She used to be in Downing Street. She said to me, the great difficulty of being a ministerial appointment is that you have to trust the people that tell you stuff. If Somebody comes in and says from Network Rail, we're changing the timetables. they need to be changed, and the minister says, can you handle that? Are you sure you can make that happen without any problems? And they say yes. What's he supposed to do? Well, yeah, if that were the
1: case, I'd I'd have some sympathy, but that wasn't the case. You know, he was warned. I mean, people have been warning about the lack of train drivers as long as six years ago. And, and, you know, nothing has happened.
3: But why is there Uh, a lack of train drivers?
2: Um... Too many right, ticket train, inspectors, what? if you ask me. I mean, there's so many ticket inspectors looking at your, t- your train ticket and asking you, have you paid the right fare? Otherwise, we're going to fine you. And there's not enough drivers. I know a simple answer to that. Retrain them.
1: Yeah, but that's the whole problem, you see. You can't just do that overnight. You know, you require um, managers to manage it, and there aren't enough managers, and you require... Well, hang on.
3: Train- We've got loads of people unemployed in this country, right? Train drivers is one of the best-paid jobs you can get your hands on. <laughs> Why wouldn't people want to do it?
1: Well, they would want to do it, but, but you you can't just recruit them overnight. You have to train them up first. Yeah. On how to drive? Well, whose job is that, because
3: though? That's the train company's job, isn't it? It
1: is the train company's job, but again, you know they. <laughs> The department. You see, the problem is that it's hard to explain that the, the, the train companies themselves aren't all to blame because they have very little freedom of manoeuvre. No, but
3: they hide behind Bruce, that, Bruce. It seems to me. No, because, no, no, it's true. Well no. well, no, I'm not saying it's not true, but they hide behind the fact that they. It's a bit like when Scotland, before they had their referendum, they used to say yeah. they used to complain about Westminster all the time. Yeah. Westminster won't let yeah. us do this. Westminster won't let us do that. Then they got devolution, yeah. and there's lots they can do themselves. And now they don't complain quite so much because they can't blame anybody else. If you're a train company, you're going to blame the government. And say, well, our hands are tied here, mate, you know, we can't hire any more train drivers because nobody's told us how to do it.
1: Yeah, that's fair. You know, everyone passes the buck. And and I've, you know, I've been clear, they're all blame. The train operating companies are to blame, Network Rail is to blame, the Department for Transport, Chris Grayling, are all to blame. They've all shown failures Mm. here. But I think, you know, I'm just trying to sort of spread the load evenly, that it's not like... It's never as simple as it might appear to no, I No, I,
3: I get all that, and I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with you, Bruce, but what I'm saying is, is that we've now reached a point at which something has to change, surely, because when we get to a stage where you can't drive a train through a tunnel because you haven't been trained yeah. how to drive a train through a tunnel, we are literally entering, you know, Alice in Wonderland, yeah. Cloud Cuckoo Land, whatever you want to call it. Yeah,
1: yeah, I agree. I mean, you know... I, I... The the, the the everyone will say that things will improve and I, you know and I think they will. The problem is it's going to take time. Well, they can't get no, much worse, can they? They really can't get much worse. But you know, because you have in not enough trained drivers. You can't recruit them overnight, so it's going to take time to train them up, uh, and it's going to take time to recruit them. It's going to take time to manage the trains and rejig the timetable to take into account the new trains and so on. You know, it's a, it's a really tedious, slow progress a process, which is going to take, you know, several months to iron out. And, of course, it shouldn't have happened like this in the first place, but, sadly, that is the position we find ourselves in right now.
3: We do, and I'm afraid it has to be said, it sounds much more like another sort of great British cock-up uh, as per lots of things that we can't, we can't seem to get right. I mean, when you're paying the southern rail boss, uh, who's the chief executive, half a million quid a year, he really ought to be doing a better job, shouldn't he?
1: Indeed, yes. I mean, I, you know, I think you, you, you've you moved on to an, another debate about top pay generally. It's all the same yeah, debate
3: think,
1: to me. Well, yeah, yeah, OK, but it's just a biggie, isn't it? But, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think um, it, it, it sort of sticks in the core a bit, doesn't it, in, in the face of the travelling public, when... Right. The, the big bosses seem to be rewarded uh, for failure. Yeah. And, and we had this recently. You no know, doubt you're aware that, that Mark Kahn, the, the head of Network Rail, has got a gong recently. It
3: has come to my attention, and I'm afraid yeah, we've already you know, been taking calls on it this morning. You should have been listening, Bruce.
1: Oh, I'm afraid I haven't. But I mean, you know, Shocking. It, to his, you know in, in defense of Mark Kahn, you know, he has put in place a lot of improvements in network rail. That's a ridiculous
3: Uh, thing to say though, Bruce. I mean, you you really ought to take more time to spend on the trains and try and tell that to all the people waiting for a train that's not coming, or trying to get on a train that doesn't have enough carriages, or, or being told wrongly that you can't actually apply for a refund, even though you're entitled to it by law.
1: Yeah, well, OK, that, that definitely is a train-operating company thing. But, I mean, the, 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 the issue with Mark Khan, OK, he has done a lot of work improving project management, believe it or not. Really? But we just don't see the fruit of that until, you know, maybe several years later. And whilst we're sort of still in this chaos, again, I think it is, is very bad PR, very bad judgment and timing on the part of Number 10 and Network Rail and Mark Khan himself to actually accept this gong now when he could have said, well, actually, no, it's not the right time. Let's put it off until the new year or something. And then, you know... Um, maybe some of the improvements in the railway would yes. have worked their way through. I think, I think, I think that, that would, I would have been sensible. It. Bruce, listen, yeah. I really
3: appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Bruce Williamson there uh, from the campaign group Rail Future. Very reasonable man, uh, making very reasonable points. But I think the point of reason has now been passed, Katie, and it's time uh, for people to get somebody around the throat and say, fix this, please, before it's absolutely hurts out of control. People don't know what trains to get. They don't know when to travel. They don't know how much to pay. They don't know where to find the cheapest ticket. You know, it's an absolute absolute nightmare anyone who travels by train on a regular basis in this country will know precisely what I'm t-
1: It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind
3: Now, how hard do you think it would be to become a detective?
2: I don't know, but I quite fancy it. Yeah, sort of Cagney and Lacey yeah, style. Like you could do five. that, couldn't you? I could
3: see you slamming somebody I against your wall. I reckon I'd be
2: really, really good at either being a prison guard yeah. or a police officer. Were you not
3: involved in the prison guards recruitment service from uh, from graduation?
2: Well, I gave it the rubber stamp at number 10 because we were desperate. We had no prison governors, or prison um, staff, I should say. This was the, a couple of years ago, this right? It was a couple of years ago. Um, there'd be cutbacks, of two... two too tight. Uh, I won't say what minister, but you can work it out by the man that's now in charge of the trains. Um, And basically all of these uh, officers were told, oh, we don't need you anymore. We're fine. We're going to have massive efficiency savings within the prison service. And guess what? There were riots. Couldn't control everybody. Had to go and hire a load of people. And one of the things we needed to hire was people that could come from different walks of life who could see that a career in a prison was actually, it could be a career. Mm. And we went out to graduates and did a big marketing campaign, which I signed off and got a great response, and quite a few women applied. And did you
3: have to raise the the, the, the pay and all that yep. sort of thing? needed to raise the pay yep. and also
2: um, raise a, kind of a pump prime budget from the Treasury to be able to pay for these new recruits. Well, what's gone
3: wrong now then? Because apparently through. we're now back in crisis again in prisons, aren't we? Because they're overcrowded. You're always in crisis um, and they prisons. And they can't recruit enough people to work in them, and so there's a similar kind of malaise, isn't I there? I think
2: when I was at number 10, we were about eight spaces short of being completely full up in all women's prisons in Britain. Uh-huh. And we were using police stations, which are £250 a night, yeah. which is cheaper to stick them in poshies hotel, mm. um, uh, to, because we had nowhere to put people.
3: Why does it cost that much, though? I mean, I always ask this question well, to stations. anyone who talks about, you know, the expense of, of you know public spending and, and the, the, the cuts and how they're affecting people and stuff like that. I mean, how do you know that it costs 250 quid to put somebody in a police station for the night?
2: Because they do the full breakdown of the building, the cover, the staff, the custody suite, everything right. that's needed, a doctor that's needed on hand, uh-huh. all of the different things. And right. it works out to be the £250. And indeed, for a while, for quite a long time under Blair's government, nobody really knew the cost of anything. And there's a big push from him onwards to learn the cost of things. So we now know that prison space is on average 100 grand a year. So if you're putting someone away for regular minor shoplifting because they've got a drug habit, I'd argue 100 grand a year isn't such a great investment. I'd rather stick them on a drug rehab programme mm. than stick them inside. If it works. If it works, but I'd rather that prison cell be available for a criminal that is a very nasty person. Yeah, that... somebody
3: that's more likely to do damage. Exactly. Well, this is a similar idea. David Spencer is a co-founder and CEO of Police Now. Nick Hurd, who's the policing minister, uh, says that uh, it's a good idea to bring younger recruits in from, gr- for, who have just got, literally graduated from university uh, because it will somehow uh, let them play an important role in bringing criminals to justice. They're saying, basically, they can train these people up very very quickly within 12 weeks and they'll be obviously still training beyond that but after 12 weeks they'll be allowed onto, onto live cases I'm not so sure this is a brilliant idea but see what David says. David a very good afternoon to you.
2: Hi David. Afternoon.
3: Thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining us. I mean this seems I suppose on the face of it like a, a noble plan but I'm not absolutely sure that I want to be uh, interviewed by a detective who's only been in the job three months about something which is quite a serious offence that's been committed.
5: Well, first of all, this isn't a programme which is just 12 weeks. It's a two-year leadership development programme. No, I get that. I did say that. But they're going to be working
3: on live cases after 12 weeks, aren't they?
5: Well, you're absolutely right that what we need to make sure is the people that come through the door are absolutely capable enough and have the training to be able, after the initial period, to actually be dealing with members of the public, dealing with people exactly as you've described, who are having a pretty tough time, going through the toughest time of their lives. And that's why it's so vital. We get the best people we can find into policing because it is an incredibly tough job, but absolutely vital. And we train them and develop them as best as we possibly can, right from the beginning all the way through these two years.
2: I agree with you, David. You need the best uh, that we can offer to be able to do that very vital job. However, I've got a problem with this. I've got a problem with the fact that it's just graduates. That's one of the most savvy, gritty people that I know. The ones that can get those criminals by the scruff of the neck and get them sorted out are from either the wrong side of the tracks or very close to the wrong side of the tracks. They aren't exactly the Oxford and Cambridge churnouts who haven't got sometimes a brain cell between them. They might be very, very clever on paper. They don't have much common sense. And to catch criminals, you need common sense. Why only go after graduates? Why not regular well, members of the public apply? Well,
5: you know what? We need. We need all of those things, actually. We need people who are incredibly bright. And we also need people who are incredibly street-savvy. And there's absolutely no reason why a Oxford or Cambridge graduate couldn't be that as well. Because I'm not necessarily looking for people who are straight out of university. This programme will require that you've got a number of years' work experience as well if you've been out of university. But also there's different routes into policing. I think that's really important, is that you know you don't just have to be a graduate. There's a new apprenticeship scheme starting so that you know you can come in both um, straight after your A levels or um, you know, come through without A levels necessarily. And so this what we need a whole range of people coming in, not just graduates. I couldn't agree more.
3: Is some of this down to the fact that the sort of the face of crime is changing to an extent as well? In that You've not got so much sort of uh, a capability of going out onto the streets, but you've got to have people sitting in offices checking cyber criminals and keeping an eye on fraud and that kind of thing.
5: Well, I think you need both. I think we absolutely need to have police officers out there on the street reassuring the public and on patrol. But you're absolutely right that crime is changing and has been changing over recent years. And there's more and more of that crime which is online and cybercrime and fraud. There's more and more protecting of vulnerable people and safeguarding things that happen behind closed doors that police officers need to get involved with. And actually they're the sorts of crimes where we do need more and more detectives all the time.
4: Right.
3: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. Uh, Neil says we've had graduate managers at Royal Mail who have never handled any of the post and have no idea how the job works from behind their desk, and they're expecting police detectives to be trained up in twelve weeks. I think that is also a problem. Where you bring in all these, you know, so-called graduates, and they suddenly become detectives, but they'll be working with people who have probably been detectives for maybe ten years, and and before that were actually, you know, coppers in uniform, knew the job inside out you know it's the same with like you know almost any job you can think of that requires not just um, a qualification but some level of experience you know it's like people who claim to be journalists you know they have no idea all these citizen journalists that we have now you know who don't even know what the law is no, don't no, even that's know the problem. what the rules are don't even know what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do not, don't even know how to check a story is true don't even know how to find out whether a fact is true and
2: they keep on sharing inaccurate stories yeah. it's wonder why people only get half the story
3: exactly right there is one thing that's being shared around a lot right now though which is brilliant Uh, and it's about one of these uh, idiots that was on that tommy robinson march on saturday Right, He's shown doing a Nazi salute at the start of the video. And then towards the end of the video, shows him getting arrested and he's crying like a baby. <laughs> i like just a Leave sticky. me alone. It's screaming really fantastic. Ears. Whoever this guy is, he is going to be about as embarrassed as anybody can be. Oh, my God. If that I was my gonna, son. I think he's going to have to disappear and like emigrate to Australia or something for the
2: rest of the time. Can you time? imagine going down pub a pub after they play idiot. that on their phones? Yeah. Be like, yeah, I'll have two pints and whatever that guy at the end's drinking and everybody just puts it up on their phone and starts <laughs> playing in the video. He's going crying around. Crying like it's a brilliant.
3: baby. Absolutely brilliant brilliant stuff. It's <laughs> tremendous. Absolutely tremendous stuff. Now, lots of other uh, uh, tweets uh, to read out to you. Uh, here's one from uh, uh, Donald who says, why aren't the police kitted out like Iron Man or Captain America? That way, violent, the way violent crime is going, civilians might need to be. Funnily enough, I went to the cinema at the weekend to see the new Avengers movie, uh, which is very good, if was you it? like that sort of thing. No. I mean, I don't, I mean I'm not massively into it, but the trouble is two and a half hours long, Ugh. but it's got Captain America in it. It's yeah. got all. Oh, it's got the, What's Hulk.
2: the age group for it? Um, well, would my two kids
3: loved it. I mean, 13 and 11, I would okay. say, just around about there. It's a 12, actually.
2: Because okay. yeah, my 11-year-old
3: turned to me and went, I'm not supposed to be in here. <laughs> I said, no, it's all right if you're with me, you know. I uh, love
2: that. You, get, you let them get away with something, and then yeah, they go yeah. grass you up. I
3: know. And then you know what he does? He goes, uh, they decided to go to the pick-and-mix uh, stand, okay? So I sort of was absent-mindedly going and doing something else. I came back. He's got like a, he's practically filled up the bag, right? I said, what are you doing? He's like, well, you know, I, I like pick and mix. We haven't had any for a long time. You know, mummy doesn't let us have pick and mix yeah. when it comes to the cinema. I'm like, all right, well, don't, don't, don't take any more. So he f- eats about How half much? of it. Yeah. I pay, it's about 20 quid for the, for the pick and mix. Well, no. me, me, him and his brother. Oh, my He's God. His got popcorn, right? 19 yeah. pounds something it was. Oh, my God. And uh, so, so he ate about half of it. And he brings the bag back. And I don't know what it is about him. He's always trying to get somebody in trouble. He usually ends up getting himself in trouble. He's proudly holding this bag. You know, and his mother says to him, because she didn't come, she stayed home with the dog for a bit of peace and quiet. And yeah. she goes, uh, what's that? Oh, that's my pick and mix. She's like, that's an awful lot of pick and mix. He said, you should have seen it before I ate the first <laughs> half. And so then
2: I got it in the neck, right, for allowing him to of get course, that much. Of you grief as well. Oh, my, my, my little cousin, when he was young, when the Woolworths were still around, he used to go and put his hand down the edge. and just When he walked into Woolworths and walked out the other side, because uh-huh. there's two entrances to Woolworths. Oh, yeah. I used to have to check his pockets and his hands. Oh, in case he'd nixed them. Yeah, yeah. Up. His hands would go, go, go across them. And do you know mm. what he'd used to do? He'd say, even if you got a cup and we were going to buy it, yeah. he'd go, one for me, one for the cup. <laughs> one for me, one for the cup. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. People have been arrested and You've got to that, weigh you know? it yeah. and you've got to pay for it. I know. Can
4: I just ask Katie? Uh, nice to have you back, Katie. Thank Bit you. Um, did you actually go to the uh, first Bournemouth uh, police conference with Theresa May?
2: No, 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 no. She was when she was home secretary. Yes. No, I only joined her when she was Prime Minister. So, um, so the Home Office now. team. She
3: only works for people at the top of the tree. <laughs> like Mike, <laughs> Like
2: Mike Graham, actually. So why were you in the room? No, I wasn't. I'm not you'd never get me in the police force, I'll tell you
4: now. But you know, kind of she, she told it as it was. She did, she stopped she it to them. never folded it up, you know, and she went the second time the following year to Bournemouth. She should have said some, you know, she should have followed up a threat. We still have the police investigating the police. And the, the name, you know, there's a lot of good police officers. I don't know one or two. But to call them wooden tops is, is not far from it from for some of them. But can I also ask about, you, you were taught, uh it's been on the radio a load of drivel this morning about Calais and Dover and the big queue. Can I offer a solution to that?
3: Is this the rubbish that they're all saying is going to happen if, in fact, we don't have a deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all cobblers. though. I wouldn't. Worry. I wouldn't listen to a word of that.
4: Well, can I give you an option? Go on. This is what this is what I would do. This is what I would do, mate. Okay, is you're going to have your vehicles, your HGVs, and your tourists and your caravans. So lorries get priority, and perishables and any loaded lorry goes on first uh-huh. you leave the caravans till last so they get the space and after 12 months the french will be so up in arms about them losing the tourists they won't try it again yeah as for uh, customs well the A14 goes into Felixstowe, one of the biggest well the biggest container port in this country there's no
3: queues. Nobody's oh, mentioned. Stuff. Nobody mentions Felixstowe. I mean, presumably people use Dover because they're going either to Dunkirk or to Calais. But nobody mentions Felixstowe. I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, there's going to be massive jams at Felixstowe." Have you?
4: What to the point? It's all your Chinese stuff, and you 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 get winders, and you've got to be there for say ten thirty in the morning. Right. So if you turn up at eleven o'clock, they won't let you in. You've missed your slot. You've missed your slot. But the technology is so brilliant now. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. It's like clockwork. Yeah. And and they put things in quarantine that they really know about, sure. you know? Now, of, course,
3: Everything else just goes out. of course. And what I've always said to Mike, to these doom and gloom merchants, is that, you know, the French go on strike at least six or seven times a year. We have lorries backed up on the M20 to Dover, uh, you know, at least four or five times over the course of the summer. You know, nothing seems to go terribly wrong. They don't run out of food in Scotland or in Cornwall uh, or anywhere else. You know, it's part of the way that the French operate. It's just the way life is. I mean, when I was flying to Greece last weekend or the weekend before, we couldn't fly over France because there was an air traffic controller strike.